You're listening to an adult Sunday school class at Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org. All right, well, we are doing a little bit of catch-up today from the end of last week's lesson, but this week is also our our winding down for this series and uh, hopefully an extended time for some questions and conversation. Uh, I did prepare, as I said I was going to last week, a a bibliography of everything that I read to prepare for this, because a lot of you had asked, and I wanted to be able to hand that to you, and uh, due to some network error in the basement this morning, I couldn't get it to print out, so I'm sorry. But I was going to have that available for you, and if you want to, you know, email me or something, I can get that in your hands. But one thing I want to point out was, of all the stuff that I've gone through that I found the most fruitful for our study together, and really would have been, I think, the most straight-to-the-point and pastoral books on this varied subject matter uh, are these three. And I brought them all up before, so I'm, I'll just show these to you again. This is Satan Cast Out from Frederick Leahy. Very much, this is literally a study in biblical demonology, just straightforward. It was written in the 70s by a Reformed Irish pastor. It is excellent. Uh, there is the wonderfully named Discourse on the Damned Art of Witchcraft, which, you know, put that on your coffee table to make sure all your guests see it when they come in. <laughs> This is by William Perkins, uh, one of the eminent Puritan masters, part of the uh, kind of beginning of that movement. And this was his indictment on what do you do legally because he was part of the Church of England. So the church and the state were wed together. So do you actually execute witches because that's what the Bible says to do? He has a much better take on how do we actually approach this as a subject and realize it's very real, just as it was in 1608, just as it was in... BC 2000, and as it is today. So very good. And then um, Giants, Sons of the Gods by Doug Van Dorn. He's a Reformed Baptist pastor out in Colorado. And this, I think, is a better take than I had mentioned Michael Heiser's Unseen Realm that's much more academic, much stuffier, uh, a lot less expansive. I mean, it covers a lot of ground, but much. this is a much easier book to read, and it's based on his work and also comes more from a grounded, reformed exegesis uh, and it's extremely helpful. So those are the three I'd recommend the most if you're going to go pick up anything that comes out of this study. I'm not asking you to do so, but if you're interested, one of these three. Um, so to get into it, we were talking about the various natures of spiritual warfare, the different fronts on which we are assaulted. It's the world, the devil, and the flesh. It is not merely one of those. We are often in many different Christian traditions overemphasizing one to the detriment of the others and leaving ourselves gravely exposed, mostly out of ignorance or overconfidence in, in one realm. Again, I say we are you know, Reformed Calvinist Presbyterians here. We're very good at mortifying our flesh. Well, not very good at it, but we're very good at knowing about it. Um, surely we could all do better in actually executing that throughout the day. Um, but we tend to say, if the, you know, if you kind of fill up the flesh 100%, take care of that, you're set. That is very mistaken. That's certainly not what Scripture teaches us. Uh, similarly, we could go overboard with social justice or trying to change the world and make it a godly place and thus remove that temptation that's probably neither plausible nor helpful because then, again, we may be ignoring that we're corrupting everything we do because we're sinners. And likewise, if we make everything about Satan, then we ignore the lived reality that we have, both internally 
and externally. So all those go together. Um, and so I want to pivot today and talk about really the purpose of spiritual warfare. And this is something I know I've had a few conversations this week with some of you asking, you know, if, if we have confidence in, in Christ's victory and we are frustrated all the same by living in a world that is very difficult and scarred by sin, um, like, what's the upside here? Like, do we just kind of hunker down and wait for Christ to come back? And hopefully this all gets whisked away. And certainly we do pray. Perhaps we pray not often enough for Christ to return. That is his great second coming. We, we look forward to it. But I want to challenge you that um, ultimately spiritual warfare is just one part of the way that God makes us into holier people. It is a refining fire, just like the temptations of our flesh, just like the corruption of the world, so even spiritual attacks against us. So we need to remember that while Satan, along with his angels and demons, attack us directly and through the means of a sin-scorched world and deluded flesh, all the forces of evil are in God's pocket. Without permission, Satan cannot accost Job. And because he was given that permission, Job became a righteous man. We see him in the first opening chapters, certainly as described as blameless, but certainly he went through a tremendous amount of sanctifying fire before we see him at the close of the book. And that was because Satan rolls up and says, let me take my best shot at Job. And God says, sure, you'll be proven wrong. You want to destroy him. I will use your very malice to turn him into a greater, holier servant of mine. So consider the concepts from our beloved hymns. We sing these often, and I, I thought of them all throughout this study, but we're finally able to put them in here. So we sing out from a foundation, uh, and, and that says this, when through fiery trials thy pathway shall lie, my grace all sufficient shall be thy supply. The flames shall not hurt thee. I only design thy dross to consume and thy gold to refine. The soul that on Jesus hath leaned for repose, I will not, I will not desert to its foes. That soul, though all hell should endeavor to shake, I'll never, no, never, no, never forsake. And then we look to, I ask the Lord, which uh, I know we've, we've heard many sermons even here re- reference this because it is so powerful because this is, uh, you know, the author John Newton is writing to say, you know, I basically said, God, I'd like you to sanctify me. I would like to be a holier man. And there is a great refrain there. I think it's the second stanza wherein um, he's basically saying, I kind of expected to pray that, and then it happens, right? Like, thank you. Please make me holy. And the rest of the hymn is showing how God certainly went about his business to do that, but it is not an easy process. Lord, why is this? I trembling cried, wilt thou pursue thy worm to death? Tis in this way, the Lord replied, I answer prayer for grace and faith. These inward trials I employ from self and pride to set thee free and break thy schemes of earthly joy that thou mayest seek thy all in me. Such beautiful texts. There's a reason we keep them in our wheelhouse because not only are they lovely, but they are deeply convicting. Certainly often I would much rather God just infuse me with a little holiness so I can be a better Christian guy but that is not his way. He desires to have us grow, and growth does not come by being bottle-fed. It comes by struggle and by victory over time. 
Uh, one last comment here is from Thomas Brooks, again, the author of uh, Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices. He says, all the rugged providences that David met with did contribute to the bringing of him to the throne. All the stones that were about Stephen's ears did but knock him closer to Christ, the cornerstone. That is to say, David was not made a righteous king because he was righteous by himself. He had to go through the meat grinder. Half of that, if not most of it, was his own doing, his folly, his vanity, his selfishness, and the Lord did not condemn him and damn him for that. He used those trials to elevate him to the great prototype of Christ as a divine king in the Old Testament. Likewise, Stephen, the first martyr, being stoned to death, and Brooks says those stones merely knocked him closer to Christ, the true cornerstone. That ought to be very much our attitude. Any questions on this so far or commentary? One thing I want to remark earlier as well, and uh, just never got it into the study, but I think it's pertinent here too, is um, in the same way, you know, we've talked about how there is certainly agency that we have in either falling into temptation and and, and indulging that and or uh, having to overcome the difficulties of the world, that God rewards us with sanctification, but it's also still our choice to do these things, right? We're not, we're not being wholly captivated by Satan and forced to do something we don't want to do. It's warfare, and there's agency there. And I want to point out that on the flip side, that is the same for these very spiritual forces. We think about uh, prophecies like uh, Isaiah talking about Assyria being used as the axe by which to chop down Israel, and yet the axe foolishly thinks it lifts itself to make the swing. And then the axe is judged, as in even, even the elements, the, the means of warfare, are then judged for it. So Assyria is used by God, and at the same time, Assyria is destroyed by God because they still did evil against Israel. It was for the good of the covenant, but they were still on the hook for it. Um, And this takes us back to Psalm 82, which is, I think, over the course of this study, become one of my favorite psalms, because I'd never understood really the context for it. And as we had talked about with, uh, you know, kind of the fall of angels and the fall of nations and the corruption of the pagan nations post-Babel with their overseers, these sons of God who were either rogue then as a punishment or went rogue later, demanding the worship of Yahweh for themselves. This is what the psalmist says... God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. They have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. I said, you are gods, sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. O God, arise, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all the nations. This is an incredible passage. First off, talking about Yahweh addressing these intermediaries, which he entrusted. Again, either they were already fallen and were given to the nations as basically punishment for both of them, 
fallen angels, fallen people, you are both deserving of each other. Misery loves company. Or they were set up in justice and then fell. Either way, we don't quite know. But it stands to reason that even we consider the Ten Commandments, God doesn't give that to the Israelites expecting them to keep it. He gives the Ten Commandments to show them they can never do it. Even here, he's saying, you were meant to be just judges. You were meant to be godly rulers. You were meant to be defenders of the destitute. And instead, you became pagan gods. And like gods, you will not die. You will die like men. It is a great indictment. Clearly, if this was talking about the sons of Israel, which at that point was not yet a nation, it would not make much sense for men to die like men. I believe this really is an indictment against these angelic overseers, and they are dust at the end of time. The point being is that even though these are the catalysts for so much darkness in the world, they get their comeuppance. They are used by the Lord, but they still deserve the death that they brought upon themselves. Any questions? We'll move on to the next slide. All right. So I want to talk about our proper response. And this this is kind of the the application point, trying to summarize all this together, right? Keith Evans, uh, we mentioned him before. He says, the scriptures consistently repeat the importance of the ordinary means of grace as the durative response to the kingdom of darkness. We need not be unmoored from the all-sufficient scriptures in chasing after extra-biblical ways of combating our ancient foes. As William Perkins rightly notes, after Noah came off the ark and set foot onto the land that had been given over to the full measure of evil and rightful judgment, what did he do to sanctify the desecrated place previously trodden by the fallen angels? He erected an altar and worshipped that we can talk about exorcism and demon possession and dark hauntings and all these things, and really the answer to them is not a special office and vials of holy water and studded crosses. It's the worship of the triune God in the right means directed to us by Scripture. Noah walks out of the ark onto what must have been a just wasteland. The entire earth scoured, and done so because it had been corrupted by empires of decadent evil. It was a hellscape. He doesn't perform magic rituals. He doesn't do anything uncanny. He builds an altar and worships God and thanks him for the deliverance. And what do we see all throughout the patriarchal period? That's what they all do. They go to a new place. It's a sketchy place. It's filled with the worship of rogue gods. They build an altar and they worship Yahweh. Then they build another altar and they worship Yahweh. And they go to a new place and pitch their tents and they build an altar and they worship Yahweh. Is that not the pattern that is clearly given to us for today? There isn't a magic toolkit of of special things to combat spiritual warfare. It is the rightly ordered affections of the heart and the ordinary means of grace. You think of Paul and the probably the most famous statement in Scripture on spiritual warfare, right? He's introducing the full armor of God. And this is what he's saying. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil 
in the heavenly places. He's not mincing words there. We the, all these things, right? We've talked about. Yes, Gretchen, you have a question. That is a great point. So Gretchen asks, is this then our proper preparation to spiritual warfare, not our response? I would argue that as a both and. That as we are assaulted, both internally, externally, and in ways perhaps we cannot understand or that are frightening, we respond with worship and with faith, not with talismans and not with incantations. We do not prepare ourselves for worship by being spiritually lazy throughout the week. We equip this armor of God on a daily basis. And I, I recall, you know, I, being a good Baptist kid growing up, was a part of probably 15 different vacation Bible schools all about the armor of God. We just couldn't get over that. You know, I, I was sitting up there with a little cardboard armor covered in tin foil with my sword. My mom loved it. I, was, I couldn't get out of it. I was, I was going to do that every year on the year until they gave up the curriculum. Um, And so we can easily make that sound childish, or we hear this passage and we think very often, yeah, 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 okay, whatever. The point is, is he's saying we trust in the salvation that we have, and we do wield the sword of the Spirit not to, you know, make dispel evil things, but to show the gospel is true and applicable at all times. We do gird ourselves with, you know, the, the sandals of, uh, oh, now I'm forgetting it. I should have put it in my notes. You know, all those things. Like I said, we talk about this all the time. The point is the imagery is both preparatory and responsive. It's offensive and defensive, and we'll talk about that in a minute. But what I want to point out is, again, Paul here is very specifically saying this is preparation and response to very, very large evil foes who want to destroy you. These are cosmic powers over this present darkness. He's not talking about you're tempted to lie, cheat, and steal. Certainly that's included. He's saying there's a huge arsenal of people who want to destroy you. Um, Looks like the battery is not... Hold on just a second. Okay. Um, But even still... Our response is to worship. Our response is to faithfully interact with the sacraments, to pray, to sing, to confess, and to profess our faith. Uh, Joel Beakey says, Paul brings prayer and watching together in one verse later in this section, Ephesians 6.18, because they are truly inseparable. Our day often goes poorly because we have failed to begin in heartfelt prayer. We also pray poorly as we retire in the evening because we have not been watchful throughout the day. Watch and pray, Jesus said. He goes on to say, the devil loves to work with drowsy Christians. The point being, this is, as Gretchen was asking, is it preparation or response? It's both. It's a cycle. We are assaulted. We are convicted. We are tempted. We fall. We repent. We worship. We prepare. We pray. This goes back and forth. Healthy spiritual hygiene is the sum of our defensive awareness of and offensive rebuttal to spiritual warfare. Certainly, we all agree we want to be good Christians, but that takes a lot of work. And I'm not saying that's any meritorious enterprise. We're not trying to earn a thing, but we're trying to use the equipment we're given and the camaraderie we share and the resources we have to be spiritually clean. That means we take care of ourselves and we put the effort in to make the day worth living and the worship worth giving. 
We do not come, even though we are weak and frail, and by no means we say we must achieve some sort of level of performance to come into the presence of God. By no means. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that when we're considering the things that assault us and what we must defend against, we're going to do a poor job if we do a poor job, right? The performance is not there if we are not trying to rise to the occasion, worship well, pray ardently, lift each other up, bear each other's burdens, and encourage each other in the faith. So we talked about this illustration last time, but this is where I'll I'll wrap up here in terms of the slide proper. We are more than heads as people. We require rightly ordered affections and active service in the lives of others. Again, this is considering we are not just intellects, we are also hands, we're hearts. We're multifaceted, fully orbed people, and we can't let our guard down in any one place. In the same way, we are more than hearts. We do require sound doctrine and the habitual pursuit of good works and virtue. And we are more than hands. We require orthodox preaching, the sacraments, and deep-rooted prayer lives. If we want to practice spiritual hygiene, we pursue all of these things. If we want to understand our great cosmic enemies, we need to do all these things. If we need to defend against darkness and our sin and our own depravity, and conversely, lift others up in their times of struggle and affliction, we need to pursue all of these things. Again, we live in a, in a paradigm where we respond in gratitude to the work of the Holy Spirit and the deliverance of the gospel in our lives. None of this we're doing for God to love us. All of this we're doing because God loves us and because we love him. And we realize there is far more to this context than merely thinking about our own temptations or thinking about... Uh, how naughty the world is today, or thinking about a misconception of what the demonic is. All these things are, are linked together. So that is what, that's our catch-up from last time, and really I think there's nothing more to add on my end in terms of summarizing the study, because I think this really is the punchline. What do we do with all this? I mean, now we could have spent months, if not years, going down the rabbit trails that spiral out from much of the content we've covered. Uh, Many of you have already indulged some of those conversations with me in the interim, and I'm still welcome to it. But I wanted to open this up and say we have some time now really to ask questions about everything we've gone through, whether it's what we just studied here or some of the introductory sessions we had even back last month. So with that, I say, what's on your mind coming into the, the close of this study? Ian. Jim, uh, just in what you were talking about just now, um, you really brought up the light that it's, it is the simple worship of God that God is after. And um, just in thinking about what Nebuchadnezzar and getting this you know, dream that you're going to eat grass like, like an ox. And then God gives him a whole year to repent, just repent. Simple worship, repentance, um, service, and and he doesn't. And then you know this this kind of like psych, psychosis of, of going out into fields and having to do fall on at night. And you just think if there had been simple repentance, and, and that's it's not 
it's not the, the Chaldeans and the magicians and the, you know, it's just repentance, worship. So, yeah, that's that's a beautiful point. Ian is saying, and we, we think of the story of Nebuchadnezzar, who, in his unrighteousness, was told very frankly by the Lord, the only thing that God requires of him is repentance, not giving over of his kingdom or levying, you know, his treasury or saving all of the the Jews or giving them back to their land. He just says, "You, sir, specifically, repent." That is the command. And then it's interesting because the context there too is after Nebuchadnezzar says he won't do it, the, the text describes this watcher or this, this holy one, which we see connected even to the sons of God concept. Like there's this delegated authority in heaven to go and enact judgment on him. This watcher visits him and gives him this madness and he becomes, you know, uh, like eating, eating grass like a cow. Um, but all he had to do was repent, to believe in faith, and to then live out accordingly. And I, in my maybe rose-colored glasses, I'd like to think Nebuchadnezzar did actually repent after all that. He does give glory to Yahweh, but he also got uh, curb-stomped by Yahweh's judgment. So it's very likely that he was just saying, yes, I at least acknowledge you. You know, faith can be different than mere belief. But that's a great point, right? Even there, this, this great enemy of, of the kingdom of God God wants him to repent too. Or as we've gone through with Jonah and Nineveh, you know, the capital of Assyria, one of the most wretched nations in the history of the world. And they are all saved for at least a generation because Yahweh is gracious, gracious even beyond his judgment. Jim. Um, so much of what I've listened to, and this is all what you've taught, it seems to be around the sphere of being on the defensive and the awareness, mm-hmm. um, which is critical. Um, how much of the books got into what would be on the offensive side? What are the things we should be doing as the militant church, if you will, mm-hmm. against these foes that are out there in order to take to go forward? So yeah, very good question. Witnessing, yeah. uh, good works, other things. Is that a part of what these books get into? I think so, yeah. So Jim's question is, uh, this on the whole sounds more like a defensive paradigm. How do we prepare ourselves to push against the assault that comes from outside of us, what do we do to move forward? And I I would have a few comments there. Um, One is that in the same pattern that, you know, the the means of grace is the greatest offensive weapon that there is. The Bible and the Holy Spirit using scripture, no, no force can push back against that. And I think we do have to consider that there are ramifications of what is the role of the church? Is it to Christianize the entire planet? by the sword, literally? No, it is not. But we are called absolutely to witness the gospel at all times, to evangelize in all places and to all peoples. And what is beautiful is we, we go back and think about how you know, the, the Old Testament understanding of this supernatural worldview, every pagan nation was under the boot of some spiritual rebel who themselves were in, in cohort with Satan. That's why... It was especially miraculous that Nineveh came to saving faith in Yahweh, even for a generation, because that was the territory of evil. I mean, obviously, God is over all things, but I'm saying there is an almost legal declension in that period of time where God says, you want to worship pagan gods? Have at it. You know, it's like Paul talking about, really, if the greatest depths of sin is to be given over to your sin. That's the worst thing you can ever do. 
But then we see that Christ says, you know, that the, the God of this world is cast out and he disarms the powers and the principalities, this grand language of saying this, this is no longer the case. And if we look in Revelation, we're saying that from, you know, a, a, I think a very solid amillennial standpoint, Christ, or pardon me, Satan is bound right now. We are in the church age. This is the millennial reign of Christ. It's figurative. The idea is that we can that Satan can no longer deceive the nations as he once did. That's what, all of this preparation was going back. That's what deception of the nations looks like. So now, Jim, anywhere the gospel goes, it cannot be countermanded. Certainly, people will not believe it if they hear it. They need the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. But there is no like orderly paradigm that says you can come here and no further with the Bible than with the gospel of Jesus Christ. So I do think witness is critically important. I also think that as uh, Evans pointed out with Noah's example, worship is crucial, and that this is not. I think we take for granted that this is an offense. The gospel is offensive. Worship is offensive. We are, we are showing with our work here that this is important, and if you're not doing it, you're missing out on a cosmic level, right? I, Pastor Wright has said many times, Hopefully, people in Hudson look at us, come back for evening worship, and go, they're doing that again? What is, what's going on there? Uh, they, they're already wa- they already wasted their Sunday morning. Now they're going to waste their Sunday evening, too, getting all stuffy and dressed up and sitting in a pew for an hour? What are they doing? Even that witness is an offensive measure against... Um, the darkness in the world. Uh, and I would say the last thing there is to follow up with the idea that, you know, ultimately we are not called to contend directly with these larger spiritual forces. There are many places in scripture where these paradigms come up. For instance, we talked about Daniel 10 with the prince of Persia and the prince of Greece waylaying uh, Gabriel, who wanted to come and help him out. Clearly, these are spiritual entities. Who, you know, the actual king of Persia is not going to stop an archangel from showing up. And Daniel is totally not a part of that struggle, even though that's the context for why he wasn't there. Similarly, I think of Jude, where it's this curious passage of even Michael, the archangel, when contending with Satan about the bones of Moses, did not presume to slander this glorious being, but instead simply said, the Lord rebuke you. Even Michael, who is, as we see in scripture, perhaps the chief of the archangels and the prince of Israel, uh, when he's going toe-to-toe with Satan, who he clearly has dominion over in terms of God's backing, he says, the Lord rebuke you. Our business is not to combat these things and dispel them. Our business is to say that God works and will work. So I think there can be, especially in negative cultural moments, a desire to say, like, we're going to take up arms and take it all back. We're going to crush this darkness. The gospel crushes darkness. Christ crushes darkness. It's not our job. That doesn't mean we are doormats, spiritually speaking, but our role is to show up here to worship the God of the universe, to love him, and to build up discipleship in his name. That is the, un, the, the unflinching tide that will go as far as God wills it to go in time. Our responsibility is not to swing swords at pagans, but to convert them winsomely and in friendship and love. Melissa. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. Melissa's question is, especially as we look at many missionary activities, particularly on the fringe where the gospel has not gone before, that is where we see especially account after account after account of really disturbing demonic spiritual darkness, things manifesting in ways that we just don't experience, right? That's where we are, like the pillar of darkness comes down in a village and blocks out half the huts, or there is uh, sincerely obvious patterns of curses and things that are going wrong, like really disturbing activity or, or straight up haunting, that sort of idea. So what's the point? What's the role of exorcism there? And I, I want to go back to the point that truly, uh, we, we, talk, we read out of Matthew last week, you know, we have the the demon who is cast out of the house, if the house is left empty, then he decides about a week later to come back, not by himself, but with seven of his buddies, and make that possession even worse, and afflict that area even worse, and desecrate that place even worse. The idea being that unless that house is filled with the Holy Spirit, it is absolutely open to spiritual warfare of the most malicious kind. And likewise, you know, binding of the strong man. That's what, why Christ is saying, until, until the strong man is the spirit, then you're going to get plundered like that. So I think the point is that exorcism, as we understand it, is often more of a pop culture context of spinning heads and pea soup and silver crosses and things like that. It is simply not the way it works. The, the true exorcism of the world is when Christ cast out Satan, and he said so there in John. That isn't to say that that just simply makes it all go away, but the point is that the only true exercising power is the gospel itself. So in those places where the forces of darkness, particularly entrenched paganism, who wants nothing to do with the gospel, is now having to contend with missionaries and preachers and pastors, you better believe that's like the, the, you know, the, the rat backed into the corner that's going to be as ferocious as possible to fight back there. And in so doing, that missionary, those places of support need to be faithful in the gospel and to make the word go forth because that's the only true dispelling element that pushes the darkness back. Does that make sense? Yeah. Rihanna? Um, on the flip side of being able to experience um, demonic that you see sure. or experience, can what, what would you say about people that feel like they see angels? Like, would it apply to being able to see the good forces and yeah, the question being, you know, as much as we hear accounts of interacting with tangible, demonic, or spiritually dark things, what about seeing angels, and, and what about seeing the good side of the spiritual realm? And I think that's that's an interesting question because there is the the ongoing consideration of does that fall into like the continuationist or the cessationist topic of you know are, are the spiritual gifts and that sort of expression still going on or not? I think it also has to do, Rihanna, with the idea that you know we, we tend to see all the sketchy stuff come out because they don't play by the rules, as in. We, we are certainly shown in the New Testament angels appearing to people and uh, to do so for specific tasks, but they, they are following the regulation and the rule of, of God, and so do not abandon their post, as it were, to come and just do whatever they want. 
Um, and I, I am increasingly convinced that looking at the New Testament account, that angelic mediation is really not necessary anymore for the church. I'm not, certainly not going to rule it out. I also think we can only speculate there because we see, obviously, there are... Um, you know, the reality of the spiritual realm is, is with us right here. We tend not to see it. Um, but there's also, we have a complete revelation from God in Scripture, and we have clear instruction and regulation for worship, so there is no need for new revelation. Uh, and so instead, we tend to see where people are led astray in history, in, in the church history, with angelic presences that are trying to give them new revelation. You know, all throughout the stories of the Old Testament, we see the constant mode of uh, operation from spiritual darkness is to give Gnostic or occult information. Hey, you don't know this real special thing that I know. Even back to Genesis 3 and, and, and the serpent, his, his line of assault is... I don't think you have the complete story. Let me tell you what that is. And so we see throughout history a lot of angelic visits where uh, they lead people into all sorts of error and heresy and darkness, but they show up as angels. We also see that Satan himself likes to show up as an angel of light. So I think without having a totally comprehensive answer there, I would caution against desiring or going after you know, ideas of experiences with angelic beings simply because we have the, the closed canon of scripture, that mode of delivering revelation is no longer necessary for us. So if it's happening, it's probably not happening with good faith and in the best of intentions. You know, I think of the, the birth of Islam. Muhammad was in a cave and was visited by an archangel. And are we just going to take that at face value and say that was above board? That was correct? That was clearly satanic. It was meant to produce a rival Abrahamic religion, and I think there's, what, 1.67 billion Muslims today? And they are all enslaved by that dark misinformation from heaven. It was not an angel in a good way who showed up in that cave. Jonathan. Since we don't want our kids to grow up to be empiricists in their assumptions, how do we introduce some of these concepts to them without guaranteeing that they have terrifying nightmares. <laughs> <laughs> like, we want to say there's no such thing as monsters, but there are beings uh, mm-hmm. that they can't see that they might see, potentially. Um, mm-hmm. We don't know. And, and I'm, I'm assuming that a covenant child in the sphere of, of God's saving grace, ordinarily, is out of some greater protection than if they were outside of that, even if they're not yet regenerate. You know, mm-hmm. I hope that that's the case. But what do you think? Uh, that's, uh, yeah, good question. So Jonathan is asking, you know, with, with this paradigm in mind and not wanting our kids to grow up and be staunch materialists, which we've been trying to spend this whole time getting away from that paradigm because it's not biblical, how do we also make sure that we're not uh, terrifying them because we're talking about, you know, uh, fallen angels and giants and demons and monsters and these things and spiritual darkness that does want to just obliterate you? Uh, and I think uh, the, the easiest way is to put things in context. This is the story of the Bible, and we take that Bible to be true, and we take it to be the full scope of history uh, and the full scope of revelation that's at our fingertips. And ultimately, Jonathan, the most important part is to say, listen, yes, you will absolutely be faced with things either you can't explain or will frighten you, things that destroy your, your confidence because you're being tempted and you're being dragged down and you're being knocked over by your own corruption and by the, the lies of the world. All of those things point to the necessity of Christ as the king of their hearts. 
everything points back to Christ. That's why I think coming through this study, I hope we've seen there's even more to give glory to God in the, to the scope of his dominion over this dark world. Um, so I would, I would argue that the most important thing is to ensure that we actually know what we're talking about and, and to pre- present a clear story of, of the natural and the supernatural in the Bible, and that there are certainly still odd things that we come across and go, that's a bit strange, but we have to take God's word for it. Uh, but also, again, to point to the fact that nothing, nothing dispels or defenses against these things than the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I think to your point asking about, you know, is a covenant child perhaps more shielded from this sort of thing than otherwise? I think that's a, a pleasant and a hopeful thought, but I'm not convinced that that's true in the sense that even the strongest Christian who is regenerate is still battered by their own corruption and by the machinations of our adversary and by the uh, hatred of this dark world. So I don't say that to be a downer. I say that to be, the answer is always the same. It's, it's the love of Jesus Christ on our behalf and the worship of his perfect atonement and, and the Godhead writ large. Grace. Um, so my question is just in regard to like, dreams, like mm-hmm. about Nebuchadnezzar and his dream and Joseph and his dreams. Is it possible that spiritual beings, whether good or evil, can have influence on like our dreams like, mm-hmm. in modern times? Yes, Grace touches on one of the thousand rabbit trails that I chose not to go down in this study formally, which is to say, you know, what what is the role of dreams? Is there something liminal, supernatural going on there? And and is that an avenue for assault as well? And I would say, yes, absolutely there is. Uh, We see all throughout Scripture that the, except for a few instances of the dreams of the righteous, which again is kind of revelation in its time, specifically because we don't have the full picture, every other instance talking about dreams, dreamers, oracles, divination, they're always a big no-no from Yahweh, saying, listen, don't listen to the delusions of pagan dreamers. Don't listen to the oracles of the demons. Don't listen to the the visions that come to those who hate the Lord. Because we are, again, we, we are psychosomatic supernatural beings. We're not just meat. We are spirit and soul. And so we absolutely share this larger supernatural paradigm. And there's no doubt in my mind that there are places where those interact perhaps more strongly. There may be thin spaces in the world. I think dreaming is one of them, where we're not really in ourselves. We're not really out of ourselves. We don't really know what that is. To this day, we still really don't know what dreams are. But we clearly know there is a... um, a very curious and and liminal, like a kind of an in-between spaces means to those. So I wouldn't put over much stock in them, but I would also say, you know, if if you're feeling convicted like to believe something out of your dreams, please don't believe that. That That is a bad conduit for revelation. Again, we need to rest on the laurels that God has chosen to deliver us all the knowledge we need. And again, if you look back to occultism writ large, whether it's ancient or today, it is trying to perceive knowledge, wisdom, enlightenment, secrets that are beyond our normal apprehension. If they're not coming from the Lord out of the Bible, they are bad news, full stop. We've got a few minutes left. I'll probably do another question or two. Ed. 
building on what you said earlier about uh, the devil disguising himself as an angel of light, mm -hmm. we will encounter people who say, I had a dream, an angel spoke to me. And we want to pray and love them and share the gospel with them, but there's a whole subculture of people who actually believe in dreams, etc. Sure. And we need to be gracious and loving with them. Gospel always first, but we shouldn't be surprised when we come across people like that. Mm -hmm. And I know it's just a TV show, but and I've never watched it, but the um, Hallmark show about witches, mm -hmm. because it's very popular and people like it and can relate to it because we're good witches. Mm -hmm. And according to scripture, there would be no such thing but as the devil is the god of this age, will deceive people any way he can, including a false Christianity, um, where people think they're saved, but they're not believing in the gospel, they're believing what they're hearing, because he uses a, a, just a little bit of truth, and then corrupts it enough to where people won't be saved. And we need to be aware that, um, yes, we're not bowing down to pagan idols and everything, but people bow down in their hearts to this in our culture, and it's still a demonic. Yeah. You know, it presents itself as harmless and neat, maybe something you would learn. Yeah, Ed makes a really good point, and I think we'll end with it because it is a really neat and tidy bow to wrap up everything we've gone through here. And that is that clearly today we are in a cultural moment where we, we are neo-pagans, right? And we talked about how we're not really, we never really were a secular society because we're never really secular people. We have only ever shifted out of right worship into paganism of all kinds. And that could be somebody actively, you know, venerating Baphomet in their basement. I hope they're not doing that. But more likely, it's, you know, I, I, I love this TV show where it talks about good witches. And I love, uh, you know, every so often going in like a palm reading or something like that. Or, you know, I have a certain set of, you know, rituals I do in order to have a good day. These are not silly ideas because they're damnable ideas. And if there's any one takeaway from this overall series, and we mentioned it specifically last week, was we must take this seriously because it is increasingly the experience of the everyman in this world. It never has not been. It's always been there, but it's coming back vogue and in a popular manner and it's being sugarcoated. And we cannot have a conversation with a friend who says like, hey, you know, what do you think about my, my crystals? Well, we need to not say that's stupid. Who cares? We need to actually interact with that. We need to ensure that they understand there is an ontology in the world where there's a creator and you're the creature. The world is not all one thing that's divinized together. We're not trying to find our magic friendship realities. And we're not, you know, indulging these dreams that uh, some entity from outside the pale is coming in to tell us all sorts of nefarious things. So, again, the, the point here is that we understand this is scriptural. This always has been scriptural. This is the paradigm that all people have and will live in. And we need to not be dismissive of the supernatural. We should not turn up our noses. We should not be uncomfortable. If we don't have an answer, we should come back to the church and figure it out and then go back to that person and give them gospel-infused truth. Not treat them like trash, not shut the door in their face, not think they're dumb. And I don't think any of us here are doing that, but that is the Protestant expression of the modern church because we have simply jettisoned the categories of thinking about this stuff, even though it's right here in Scripture and it always has been. 
So with that, I'm going to close this in prayer. And again, we will always be open for a conversation here. If you want to ask me about anything or talk to each other about it, let's all learn together, right? We want to see all boats rise in the gospel. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your final victory in Christ over all time and space. There is nothing that is outside of your ordaining hand, and yet you hold all accountable to what they do. We thank you for your mercy and for your justice, both in this world and in the supernatural world, in the seen and unseen realms. We know, God, this is all of yours. We pray that we would commend it to your worship and go into your house now with purity of conscience and heart to render you praise that you justly deserve. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information or to connect with us, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org.